Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about huge news, or at least potentially huge news, nuclear fusion. This past Tuesday, the Department of Energy announced that scientists have successfully produced nuclear fusion ignition which could be unbelievably good news for the future of clean energy. It truly, truly could be the biggest scientific development of the last hundred years. If you don't know anything about nuclear fusion, do not worry. I'm going to be speaking with a scientist who literally wrote the book on it. He's going to help explain everything you need to know. This week, our paid subscribers also get a bonus segment. This week's segment is called One Thing, in which the Lever reporters discuss the one thing that's been most on their minds. This week includes how the dental industry is kind of scammy. It also includes the arrest of crypto grifter Sam Bankman-Fried, and they discuss the surge of class politics in film and television. If you want access to Lever Time Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, do us a favor, share our reporting with your friends and family, leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. Once again, I'm here with producer Frank. What's up, producer Frank? Not much, David. Uh, riding kind of high. Uh, you know, you just mentioned TV earlier, but a uh, lot of good TV that just wrapped up recently. I, I watched it. I'm sure you, like everyone, saw the finale to The White Lotus this past Sunday. I did. I'm a huge fan of The White Lotus. I also appreciate that uh, Christopher from Sopranos was the guy who uh, warned everybody, uh, or at least warned his son, that his son was a mark. My takeaway from the whole show is that essentially every major character was a mark, uh, was being essentially conned, which I, I love. I love that show. It, it It's a fantastic show. It, it really was. And it really it really uh, zagged where you thought it was going to zig and kept me guessing the whole time. I honestly didn't really care about like the murder mystery element of it. To me, that was like the most the least interesting part of it. But they really or Mike White really executed it in a way that was very compelling at the end, I thought. There's so much class uh, and uh, in in that show, what I mean, economic class, cult, social class. There's so much commentary uh, in White Lotus uh, about those issues, those issues that, that have to kind of be smuggled into popular culture for us to ever kind of uh, discuss them openly. And I, I think White Lotus, and you're right, Mike White, the creator of it, has done a, a great job. Now, I also think that I'm in a good mood, too, because we're about to talk about nuclear fusion, which is uh, I I'm obsessed with. Um, it's super exciting. I can't wait to get to that interview. Yeah, I've been watching you. I've been watching you nerd out about it for the last uh, day or two. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm so into it. I'm so into it. And not just because I'm a big fan of Back to the Future and Mr. Fusion. If you remember when they come back from the future, Mr. Fusion uh, is, the, is the is the kind of machine that's fueling uh, the, the time machine. But before we get to that good news. Let's get into some, I guess, bad news or at least annoying news. Definitely annoying. 
It's definitely annoying. Uh, last Friday, this is the news that that everyone was talking about, was that everyone's second favorite rotating villain, the first favorite rotating villain, of course, is Joe Manchin, but everyone's second favorite rotating villain in the Senate, Kirsten Cinema, announced that she is officially leaving the Democratic Party and will become an independent. Here's a clip from her announcement video. We make decisions about what's best for ourselves, our family, and our community. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is this a Republican idea or is this a Democratic idea? Is this liberal or is this conservative? That's not how Arizonans think. What we think about is, what's right for my family? What's right for my community? What's right for my future? I mean, Kirsten Cinema is often thinking about what's right for her donors. That's mainly what she seems to think about. I mean, she is the person who spearheaded the effort to preserve, uh, this is just most recently, preserve the private equity tax loophole, uh, the one that benefits uh, the richest people in the world uh, at the expense of everybody else. So the notion that this is some sort of principled stand by uh, Kirsten Cinema. To my mind, is a bunch of horseshit. Um, this is, in my view, uh, one, it's narcissism. She likes the attention of it. Uh, and two, I think she probably feared that she couldn't win a Democratic primary in Arizona after her flagrant corruption of over the last uh, few years. She was afraid that she would get knocked out in a primary. So this is a kind of a, a path to the general election around a Democratic primary. I should tell you, Producer Frank, I, I used to work with Kirsten Cinema. I, I knew her really? uh, many, many years ago. Yes, I started an organization in a past life called the Progressive States Network that was uh, designed to support progressive state legislators. And Kirsten Cinema was one of the first uh, people that we worked with very closely. She had come out of the Green Party movement in Arizona and was considered a very, very, very progressive legislator in Arizona's state legislature. Uh, and she has since become a kind of swamp tale, a swamp cautionary tale, somebody who has just become so unbelievably corrupt. Now, I know there's some people listening who are going to say, well, maybe she didn't become corrupt. And Sirota, you were stupid to ever think she was progressive. I mean, I guess you could say that. I guess you could make that argument. But she did have a very, very progressive voting record at the beginning of her career. And I think she just settled on a different formula and fundamentally uh, changed. I, I think people just get subsumed by the political system once they actually like reach that high of elected office. I mean, it's not the same thing, but, you know, people on the left are very critical of the squad for not actually uh, uh, voting their progressive values as strongly as we would want. But like, you know, obviously this is not, they're not nearly as bad as Kirsten Sinema. No, but it's, who a, it's a similar dynamic. I agree yes. with you. It is, it is a similar dynamic and the dynamic, again, just to state, we're not making an equivocation between, you know, AOC and the squad and Kirsten Sinema. But, no, Kirsten but Sinema I is obviously much worse. Much <laughs> worse. Much, M worse. much worse. But there is this force when you get into the club that sometimes gets expressed as complacency, a, a lack of aggressive pursuit of goals that you you promised to voters when you campaigned. That, that that can be expressed as complacency. There's also just flagrant selling out, and I think Kirsten Sinema uh, is a flagrant sellout. I mean, I heard a friend of mine called her corporate Shilema. I mean, she is one of the most, Pretty if good not fun. the most, pro-corporate votes. She has been one of the most pro-corporate, uh, anti-worker votes in the Democratic caucus. Uh, and I think this is just 
part and parcel of her career path. And ultimately, I, I think her career path, I don't know where it ends. I mean, I've seen this argument that if the Democrats run a candidate against her, it'll be a three-way race. It'll split the vote, help the Republicans. I'm sure Kirsten Sinema is going to argue that when she tries to run for re-election. My view is, is that she knows that her path ends with a lot of money for herself, meaning there's a tried and true path in Washington that if you're shilling for big money, at the end of the day, whether you win or whether you lose re-election, you will be taken care of by the people that you took care of in the when you were in Congress. And she has really focused on taking care of the pharmaceutical industry and taking care of Wall Street, which are some of the wealthiest and biggest spenders in Washington. So my guess is she thinks she has, at worst, a nice lobbying job ahead of her. Okay, before we get to our discussion of that huge nuclear fusion news this week, we're going to take a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our main story today, we're going to be talking about some potentially very, very good news. Nuclear fusion. On Tuesday, the Department of Energy announced that on December 5th, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, they successfully produced a nuclear fusion reaction, resulting in a net energy gain for the first time in human history, otherwise known as a fusion ignition. If you have no idea what nuclear fusion is, here's the most basic way to understand it. Whenever you're reading or watching a science fiction story set in the future, they almost always refer to their high-tech power sources as fusion reactors. So this is a pretty huge deal. Here's how the New York Times characterized it. Quote, there was always a nagging caveat with nuclear fusion. In all of the efforts by scientists to control the unruly power of fusion, their experiments consumed more energy than the fusion reactions generated. That changed just after 1 a.m. on December 5th, when 192 giant lasers at the laboratory's National Ignition Facility blasted a small cylinder about the size of a pencil eraser that contained a frozen nubbin of hydrogen encased in diamond. While this is still the very beginning of nuclear fusion technology, there's a lot to be excited about. For decades, scientists have believed that unlocking the power of nuclear fusion could create an almost infinite source of clean energy that could eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels. To help explain everything you need to know about this news, I spoke with British plasma physicist, Dr. Arthur Terrell. Dr. Terrell is the author of the book, The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. Dr. Terrell, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with an extremely basic question that is ultimately about this big news. First and foremost, for those who don't know what it is, what is nuclear fusion and how does it differ from nuclear fission? How does it differ from when people think about a nuclear reactor? What is what is the difference? So nuclear fusion is the process that powers the stars, literally star power. So you'll have been enjoying it yourself each day you go outside and, and feel the sun's rays fall on your face. So there's nothing mysterious about this. It occurs in nature all the time. And the way it works is by taking smaller atoms and combining them to make bigger atoms. And this is where the distinction with nuclear fission is. Because in nuclear fission, you take big atoms and you split them apart. 
Now, in both cases, fusion and fission for energy, you end up with a bit less mass at the end than what you put in. So in fusion, you've got these light atoms, you, you stick them together, they're nuclei kind of glue together. Um, but the end nucleus that you get resulting over from, from the fusion has a bit less mass in. And that difference in mass between what you put in and what you got out is released as energy, just as Einstein's famous, famous equation e equals mc squared says. What makes nuclear fusion technology so important that scientists have been researching it and developing it for decades? Why is this such a big revelation today? So I think on a scientific level, people are excited about it because it's one of the greatest technological challenges humanity has ever taken on. Because fusion requires such extreme conditions, you know, uh, to do it on Earth requires temperatures that are you know, 10 times hotter than the core of the sun, pressures 300 billion times what you'd find on Earth. Uh, while fusion is so common in the universe, it was there at the start of the universe, it's, it's what lights up the universe, so it's really kind of prevalent, um, so it feels important from a scientific point of view. But I think much bigger is the potential social impacts, because fusion as an energy source has lots of potential advantages. The first and foremost being that it's potentially a carbon-free energy source. It's um, cleaner in other senses as well, so there's no chance of meltdown. It doesn't produce long-lived radioactive waste. And scientists think there's probably enough supply of the fuel for it for thousands, if not millions of years of energy for everyone on the planet. Would it be safe to say that nuclear fusion is kind of the holy grail of modern physics research? The, the one thing that if science could get, it could just change the entire world? It's, it's very tempting to say that, and people have sometimes called it that. I mean, I think I'm a bit more of a realist on this. So I think what we need is, is a portfolio of different energy sources that have different pros and cons. And, you know, fusion is another energy source. It's got some amazing pros. I, I think it will have some cons as well. So one thing is that, you know, from what we can tell today, it probably needs relatively large plants. And even though it can produce a lot of energy per amount of land use compared to, say, renewables, um, the capital costs of setting up a fusion plant are quite large before you actually get uh, or are likely to be quite large before you get any energy out. Now, having said that, if I think about, you know, humanity in the future, where are we going to get most of our energy from? I think there's a very good chance that it's going to be from nuclear fusion. And let me tell you, if we're thinking about our far future and exploring beyond the solar system, if we're going to do that at all in any serious way, um, it's going to be nuclear fusion. It's the only energy source that can take us to the stars, literally. Now, according to the announcement made on Tuesday by the U.S. Department of Energy, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, they successfully, as you alluded to, produced a nuclear fusion reaction resulting in a net energy gain. That's the key. I'm old enough to remember, I think it was in the 80s, uh, there was this moment of excitement around uh, so-called cold fusion, where they thought they had cracked the nut, and then it turned out that they actually hadn't cracked that nut. So I guess my question on this, this is, how does what we've learned this week differ from other uh, nuclear fusion tests that have taken place in the past? Uh, is this going to be one of those things that we look back on? Is there any chance that it's going to be one of those things we look back on and say, actually, uh, it, the results may have seemed like a big deal in the moment, but actually they weren't that big a deal, kind of like the cold fusion situation uh, many years ago? Yeah, the history of fusion is littered with uh, false dawns where either um, you know the scientists were very earnest and just made a mistake, or there was, you know, 
know, out, outright fraudulent uh, claims. Uh, I think there are a few reasons why uh, this time people should be excited and why I believe they really have smashed this long-standing goal of producing more energy than they put in. The first is that um, Lawrence Livermore has, you know, the world's best experts on this type of fusion, laser fusion. And they've been doing it for a really long time. You know, almost um, as soon as the laser came out, there was a memo written at Lawrence Livermore saying, hey, we could use this for fusion. Um, they're also experts on nuclear technologies. As you probably know, it's where the stockpile stewardship for the United States nuclear arsenal is as well, with the stockpile stewardship program. So um, they're really, you know, they know what they're talking about when it comes to nuclear things. The other factor is that you, if you look at the progress over time since the National Ignition Facility at Livermore opened, um, I think it opened in 2009, 2010 sort of time, um, They've been making this gradual progress all the time. And back in August last year, they actually got to about 70% of uh, net energy gains. So um, almost as much energy out as they put in. And, you know, a couple of years before that, they hit 3%. And over time, you can just see it going up. And they've been very, very transparent about the results, about the process. Um, and uh, the most important thing is there's a particle that comes out of these reactions called a neutron. And they can show that they can measure, you know, the, the numbers of neutrons that you just couldn't get unless you were doing this for real. So um, this time, everyone is convinced that they've done it. One other question that comes up, it may be kind of a technical question, but they discovered this at, in the middle of the night on December 5th, only a few weeks ago. What was the, I guess, the barrier, the obstacle that they broke through to now uh, be able to get more energy out of uh, the system than than they had put in this big breakthrough. In other words, what was the one thing that they they hadn't yet cracked that they now have cracked? Well, that depends how you see it. So there's one version of this story that kind of says, you know, there's been lots of scientific progress here that's enabled them to do this, and it's kind of built up over time. And there's another one that says, if they'd have got the funding to build a laser that was 50% bigger on day one, then we would never have had this long wait. They could have done this in 2010. Um, so yeah, where do you come down on that? Yeah, so I think both are true, actually. Um, uh, if they had got, a, you know, a laser that was 50% bigger, or, or um, maybe even 100% bigger, then I think they could have done this uh, some time ago. And, you know, my, my PhD supervisor, um, uh, Professor Steve Rose has always said, you know, if, if they had a bigger hammer, they'd probably be able to do it. And it's notable that in this experiment, they did significantly up the laser energy. Now, that being said, um, some of the scientific breakthroughs they've made or, or had to invent, uh, create new patents for um, to get to this point with the laser energy that they have are absolutely astonishing. And even if we never use fusion for energy, everyone on the program deserves just a massive round of applause for the science they've done. Just to give you an idea of how extreme this is, a 0.1% error in the energy at the start of the laser pulse can degrade the conditions needed for fusion by as much as 50%. So they're working within incredible tolerances to make this happen. Um, and literally, they have invented new technology uh, to get to this point. Now, it's really great that this has happened. And I can see that in future, maybe bigger lasers are going to be the way that um, this is repeated elsewhere. Let's talk about bringing this to scale. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, the, the fact that even with this breakthrough, uh, that it's still decades away uh, to bring this to scale as a mass source of energy across the planet. Is that true? Uh, and what needs to happen 
to bring fusion energy to scale in a way that it could actually be a big part of combating the climate crisis and the use of fossil fuels. It's absolutely true that there's a long road between this scientific demonstration of feasibility and something that looks like a commercial power plant. And, you know, it's really worth saying that um, if if some scientists had come to you and said, hey, we want to build a, a power plant based on a technology we don't even know works, you'd have probably said, no, you probably told them where to get off, to be honest. Um, so <laughs> it, it was really important that um, this is a milestone, but this facility, you know, the funding was only to demonstrate scientific feasibility and, and that's what they've done. Um, so let's turn now to um, the, the next chapter. Um, let's say that they get the funding to take this idea further. There are some really, really big engineering and economics challenges. So we're, we're kind of moving away a little bit from the science here and it becomes about engineering. And the first is that, you know, this was a single shot on a single experiment. To make this commercially viable, it needs to happen probably 10 times a second. Um, and that means a, a very different type of laser technology. That laser technology is out there, but it's not quite ready yet. We also saw on this experiment, again, a 50%, so 1.5 times the energy out that was put in. Now, for, for commercial viability, you need much, much higher energy than that to overcome the energy of keeping the lights on and the computers on and charging up the capacitor banks and all of this extra stuff that goes on. Um, and for that, you're probably looking at getting a gain of 30 times rather than 1.5 times. Now, the great thing about fusion is it scales non-linearly. Um, so going from 1.5 to 2 to 5 to 10 is, is probably actually a lot easier than going from 0.1 to uh, to 1. Uh, so, you know, there's reasons to be optimistic. But even if we solve both of those things, there's also the questions of how do we get the heat out? How do we use it to turn water into steam to power a turbine? And how do we get it on the grid? I, I should ask, because there are real fears about current nuclear reactors and the safety of them, uh, especially in the wake, for instance, of Fukushima a number of years ago. What are the dangers, if any, associated with nuclear fusion technology at scale? Would a, would a fusion nuclear plant run the risk of a meltdown or, or something similar? It's a great question, but I should preface it by saying that actually, if you look at the data, fission is one of the safest uh, forms of energy generation um, out there. Now, that's not to say it doesn't have problems. And of course, um, you know, having an image problem is a problem in itself for people. And there are lots of reasons why people feel uncomfortable about fission, which we should take really seriously. So um, the great thing about nuclear fusion and why scientists are so excited about it is because there is just no chance of meltdown. Um, meltdown happens because things get out of control. In a fusion experiment, um, the second that you remove the, the right conditions, um, the whole thing just stops. Uh, it, it's hard to start fusion and it's really easy to stop it. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so much more difficult than nuclear fission. Um, the other factor is that um, you don't get long-lived radioactive waste. So we expect that a fusion reactor will still produce some radioactive waste just from the activation of the chamber that the targets sit in, but not actually um, the fuel itself doesn't become radioactive. So that's less of a worry. Um, and actually, this kind of level of radioactivity will of the chamber will probably be safe in about 100 years instead of the thousands of years. Uh, and it's quite low level as well. Um, so for all of those reasons, people think it's going to be a safer alternative to fission. I guess there's also this question about 
government priorities, whether in the United States or across the world. And, and I want to preface this question by saying it doesn't have to be an either or choice when you're dealing with the level of resources that Europe or the United States have at their disposal. But there is this question of what the government should be prioritizing, a question of funding, a question of, uh, of if this is a long way off, should the government uh, should governments around the world be making the funding of this research uh, a priority uh, over other uh, technologies to deal with, uh, for instance, the climate crisis and the carbon emissions from fossil fuels? So I guess I guess my question is, like, how, how much if you were advising members of Congress or presidents across the world and they say, look, look, I, I want to be careful with the resources that we spend. There is at, at a certain level of finite amount of resources. How much of a priority, if they ask you, how much of a priority should research into fusion be, knowing that it's still decades off? What's your answer to that question? So I think, you know, ultimately, this is a question for elected representatives, but um, you, you got in there that I'm advising them. So well done. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, uh, you know, if I was advising them, I, I mean, you know, speaking with my economics hat on, I'd probably say, um, you know, sometimes the public sector is in a good place to provide things sometimes the private sector is so it becomes a, a question of um what the kind of market failure is that means we need kind of government intervention and i'd say for some of the renewables now they're so cheap and accessible um that actually there's a there's a thriving uh, private sector those things are ready to be deployed you can go out you can buy them and i, I you know a question whether some of them still need government support in terms of getting off carbon you know that's a classic example of a market failure and economists love to talk about carbon taxes to kind of encourage us to move away from from the, the well to encourage us to pay the true cost of those things right uh, which people aren't internalizing at the moment and then in terms of fusion there, there are several reasons why um you know governments have seen fit to fund it one of one of them is is the fact that it's uncertain and inherently even though we now know fusion works in principle because of this stunning stunning moment of history that we, we've seen today what we don't know um is what the best and most economical way of doing fusion is and there are alternative ways of doing it so government can help remove that uncertainty by funding them and and government can also uh, take a longer view sometimes um, and um, is able to pay those upfront capital costs, which are really, really expensive for the first generations of uh, a kind of unproven technology. Now, of course, at some point, there is going to be a place for the private sector taking on some of these things and getting it into homes. Um, um, maybe it's a partnership. Maybe there's a kind of handover at some point. Um, both will be important. Uh, but right now, I think Fusion probably needs more of that support than some other technologies. I mean, that's the whole theory behind, for instance, uh, f uh, basic uh, scientific research and development into pharmaceuticals, that the idea is that the government, because the government isn't on such a, a profit pressured uh, a schedule, that the government can provide research into uh, longer, uh, longer horizoned uh, products uh, or innovations uh, that the private sector can't do. Now, I should say there are always then questions about who off who ends up making the profits off of the finalized technology. And my guess is if fusion continues to advance, uh, there will be those big questions about how it is deployed by the private sector. But as you said, we're, we're not there yet. I just want to ask one last question. Then, Is there anything else about this breakthrough, this huge news this week that you wanted to mention? Is there anything else that you're either super excited about or skeptical about as an expert in this? 
So I think there's, there's two things. The first thing I'd say is that there might not necessarily be that much new physics here because they've been kind of on this journey for a while, making kind of tweaks and maybe just hit it with a bigger hammer, you know, more laser input energy. But psychologically, the effect of being able to do this, to show that it can be done, is huge. And that's going to crowd in interest, investment, and further innovation. And I think there's a good chance here that we could get into a virtuous cycle of development where we've got a bit of gain, uh, people want to invest, we get further gain. And, you know, people always joke about Fusion being 30 years away, but it really depends how much we want it and how much we're willing to, to back it. Um, so that's an exciting thing. And we saw in the pandemic how unproven technologies that normally take 10 years to come to fruition can happen within a year, right? Um, so it's there if we want it. That's that's one really important message. The other is just um, even if we abandon Fusion tomorrow, the science that researchers at Livermore and their partners around the world have put in to get to this point is absolutely phenomenal. Um, extremes that are unheard of in the rest of the solar system being recreated in the lab, uh, precision control, um, you know, the lasers are, are guided to within a, a micron, so a millionth of a metre uh, to their target. Um, and we've got things that are, you know, almost at absolute zero right next to things that are 10 times hotter than the center of the sun. It's extraordinary. Um, so, you know, check out the details. You know, we talk a lot on this show about things that are uh, crises, uh, that are uh, sometimes depressing, sometimes uh, a lot of times bad news. This, to my mind, I mean, I'm kind of a, a, a novice science geek, or at least I'm interested in it. I am like super psyched about this stuff. I, I think it's incredibly exciting. And I said, I said on social media, I said, you know, this may be treated in some ways in popular media as kind of just another passing science story. But I, I think there's a, a very good chance that it's not just something some passing science story that this could be we could look back on this as one of the biggest uh, news events of the last hundred years and I, I just want to thank you Dr. Arthur Terrell for explaining it to us to helping us understand what it means Dr. Terrell is the author of the must read book the Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion, and the Race to Power the Planet you can find him on Twitter at Arthur Terrell Dr. Terrell thanks so much thank you that's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, they get to hear our bonus segment where some of the Levers reporters talk through the one thing that's been most on their minds. I didn't know that uh, instead of guilty or not guilty, you could plea, I fucked up. Uh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I'm going to use option legally. Yeah, uh, that's, that's good. I'm going to use that if I ever find myself uh, an under federal indictment. And please be sure to like, subscribe and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, Please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.